This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. That was one of the biggest frustrations that we faced through the research for uh, drones was that in most of the cases, people tell us you were the first person who, who asks about this. You were the first person who, um, invest, who are investigating about this and uh, we haven't heard from any organization. We haven't heard from the government, Yemeni government, or we haven't heard from the U.S. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. On February 2nd, 2020, at around 8 p.m., a family of five sat down to dinner in the city of Jilib, Somalia. Kuso Omar Abukar, a 50-year-old farmer. His daughters, Norto, 18 years old. Fatuma, 12 years old. And Ade, 7 years old. And their elderly grandmother, Khadija, around 70 years old. Suddenly, they heard a huge sound. Sand and smoke filled their eyes. Norto, the eldest of the three daughters, was struck in the head by a heavy metal fragment and killed instantly. Fatuma, Ade, and their grandmother Khadija were seriously injured. Their home was destroyed. It was a U.S. airstrike, part of the United States operation against the terrorist group Al-Shabaab in Somalia. But why did they target this house? The house of a farmer, his daughters, and his elderly mother. And where can this grieving family go for answers? For justice. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast. So since 2018, uh, the U.S. military has had carried out over 200 airstrikes in Somalia. That's two over 200 airstrikes. Uh, at Amnesty, we looked into nine cases uh, of U.S. airstrikes in Somalia, and this February um, 2020 case one was one of those. Abdullahi Hassan is the Somalia researcher at Amnesty International, where he documents and investigates civilian harm incidents. Usually, uh, AFRICOM, uh, when they carry out these airstrikes, they issue statements, public statements uh, or press releases, uh, and they say they carried out an attack in Jilib and they have killed one Al-Shabaab terrorist. Uh, that is how we initially, you know, heard about this case. Uh, and then it came out in the morning. Uh, we had uh, reports, you know, we usually get media reports and also uh, contacts. And uh, we were told uh, it was possible for that attack to have involved uh, civilians. A Somali journalist was a close relative of the Abukar family. He tried to get answers from officials at United States Africa Command, or AFRICOM, but said they wouldn't answer his questions. I was able to get in touch with that journalist who, uh, you know, connected us with the family, uh, and that is how we interviewed uh, members of, of that family. One of the people we interviewed is the father of, of the girl who was killed, who was also present uh, during the attack. He said it was the U.S. military that targeted him because he said all the airstrikes that occurred in that area were carried out 
by U.S. drones, and the family knew and understood that that airstrike was also carried out by, um, you know, by the U.S. military. So he was shocked. He was shocked that uh, his family was targeted. His young girl was killed. His mother was seriously injured. He did not know what to do. He did not know who to complain to. That was one of the problems he faced. He said he doesn't know anyone who he can talk to, and he was very glad. He said he really wanted to get justice. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to understand why his family was targeted. So Abdullahi and his team collected all the evidence they could. They spoke with other family members. They collected photographs of the house and the remnants of the missile, which they confirmed was from the United States. And they took all this information and sent it to the U.S. military as proof that the airstrike did not, in fact, kill an al-Shabaab terrorist, but rather an 18-year-old civilian woman. But Abdullahi and his team were not optimistic. He explained that in the past, getting the United States to admit to a civilian casualty incident was extremely challenging. In other numerous cases, when we investigated and sent uh, similar cases to the U.S. military, they always said uh, all the individuals killed in that airstrike were al-Shabaab members. Uh, They were terrorists. Amnesty International and other international organizations do not have some military intelligence that is in our possession. Uh, you guys uh, might be getting it wrong. So they usually, um, uh, you know, go that, that route. But this case was different. For the first time in Amnesty International's experience, AFRICOM came back and said they were still investigating. Shortly after, AFRICOM started putting out quarterly civilian casualty reports. And in that very first quarterly report, the U.S. military confirmed that the airstrike on February 2nd, 2020, had indeed killed civilians. So that was an unexpected victory, right? They got AFRICOM to admit that the airstrike was a mistake, that they killed NERTO, and that she was a civilian. Well, yes and no. You're right that this was a big, first-of-its-kind admission. But then, nothing really happened. Kuso and his family actually first found out about the admission the way the rest of us did, on the news. So the U.S. military never contacted them directly? That's right. The Abukar family didn't know this was coming, and they were also left wondering what the admission meant. What would happen next? He contacted me, of course. He being the journalist, a relative of the family. Uh, and uh, he asked what was going to happen next, and I told him I don't know what was, what was going to happen. Um, I asked whether the U.S. military had contacted the family uh, at all uh, since this incident took place, including himself, who is uh, someone who who works for the Somali government uh, and for the Minister of Information. But he said no, no one actually uh, contacted him. As the U.S. began to disclose more and more cases of civilian harm in Somalia, the same thing would happen. The admission and then silence. Uh, They will just issue press releases in English, and then that is it. So families will again come back to us uh, because, you know, they hear these admissions through the media. Then they come back to us asking, hey, we uh, we were told uh, the U.S. military has has, uh, acknowledged our case. Uh, So what is going to happen next? And we tell them, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next. We are still waiting for the U.S. military to decide. Uh, the U.S. military issues another statement to say uh, we are sorry the people killed were civilians, then that's the end of the story. They want these people uh, tell me they want uh, 
proper apology. They want to be communicated with. They want to be told. Uh, you know, we are sorry about the death of your of your loved one. Uh, we they most almost all of them prefer to be compensated. They prefer monetary compensation because it has significance. Uh, monetary compensation has significance in Somalia in terms of the peace building and you know reconciliation within clans. Uh, it's it's really an uh, an element that is encouraged within the country. But then the U.S. military, I understand, are very reluctant about about doing it so far. So Annie, what exactly does that mean here? Compensation. What what would that look like? So what Abdullahi is describing is broadly what we refer to as amends. This concept that those who cause civilian harm in war, even when unintentional or accidental in this case, the U.S. military, should recognize and assist those they have harmed, civilians. Amends can take many forms, including public or private acknowledgement of harm, formal apologies, monetary payments, which the U.S. often refers to as ex gratia payments, and monetary and in-kind assistance to individuals or their communities, ideally based on what victims say they want and need. And although the practice of amends does not have a long history in the United States, In different forms and through different names, it plays a really important role in many different cultures around the world. In the case of the Abukar family, amends could also mean getting the medical attention they still need as a direct result of the U.S. airstrike. They could take these people to hospitals to, you know, uh, Fatuma, a young girl, I think she is around 14, 15 now, uh, needs uh, urgent medical attention, but then her family members cannot afford that the U.S. military can afford and can take her to hospital. So let's talk a little bit more about the U.S. response to civilian harm incidents and amends. My organization, Civic, was actually founded on this concept, that when the U.S. harms civilians in war, it has a responsibility to recognize and remedy that harm. And Mark, you actually knew our founder, Marla Ruzica, very well. I did. Marla was a a dear friend, a young peace activist who went to Afghanistan and Iraq to document civilian harm from U.S. wars. She actually went door to door, collecting names, stories, and requests, and then came back to the U.S. government with a clear and simple ask that when U.S. military actions harm civilians, they need to do something to help those that they harmed. Marla really introduced the concept of amends to the U.S. government. She was a force for positive change, and she got the U.S. government to put aside a fund for war victims. Sadly, she then became a war victim herself, when she and her Iraqi head of operations were killed in Baghdad in 2005. But she changed the trajectory of my life and many others, and her loss cut really deeply. But she created a momentum that your organization, Civic, continues to this day. Since then, it feels like a lot has changed, and also like a lot hasn't changed. On the one hand, the U.S. military has developed practices to track and investigate civilian harm that didn't exist before Marla. They're required to submit an annual report to Congress on civilian casualties caused by U.S. operations, and U.S. amends policies have evolved over various years to today— where Congress authorizes $3 million a year for ex gratia payments to civilians harmed by U.S. and partnered operations anywhere in the world. 
I'm sensing a but coming. Yeah, and it's a big one. Despite many years of advocating for better practices, there are still some really large and really frustrating gaps. Take civilian harm reporting, for example. Year after year, the U.S. military continues to significantly undercount civilian casualties in its annual reporting. In other words, there is a persistent gap between the numbers the U.S. military reports and the numbers coming out of credible NGO observers and even the United Nations. And what's especially frustrating about that is that these external observers usually have significantly more rigorous methods for investigating these cases than the methods of the U.S. military. They're actually talking to witnesses, visiting the sites of attacks, and collecting evidence. Another huge disappointment is that in spite of all of our founder Marla's efforts and all of our work since then, the U.S. military is still very reluctant to make apologies for harm or make payments to victims. In fact, a recent report to Congress revealed that in 2020, not a single payment was made. Wait a minute. Congress gives the military $3 million a year for ex payments, right? So zero payments, even though they admitted civilian casualties and have the money for it? Yeah, exactly. And get this, we actually did the math, and using that $3 million, the Department of Defense could offer ex payments for every single civilian it confirmed killed or injured in 2020 alone, and at the highest payment amount currently authorized by the department, $15,000 per civilian claim, they would still have a whopping $2.5 million left over. Wow, wait a minute, left over? Yeah, it's beyond maddening. And these frustrations are actually what brings us to our second and final guest today, someone who unfortunately understands these deficiencies all too well. My name is Bunyan Jamal. I'm um, a lawyer based in Sana'a, Yemen. Um, I've worked with Muatana uh, for, I think, five years now. Bunyan is an accountability and redress officer at Muatana for Human Rights, a Yemeni human rights organization that has spent years documenting civilian harm from U.S. drone strikes in Yemen. Their research process is dangerous and painstaking. It starts in the field, where their researchers learn about civilian harm incidents and conduct field visits, traveling to the site of an attack to collect as much information as they can. The, the researcher uh, visits the area most of the time. Uh, we rely on, uh, on field visits. Information is usually um, interviews with the victims, their, the eyewitnesses, the families, and uh, sometimes with the medical workers. From there, researchers at their central office take all the information and analyze it, making sure it meets the highest standards before publication. But getting the most accurate information about an incident comes with significant risk. The, the danger can be either uh, this place is dangerous as it says frontline or people are, are attacked at any, anything that moves. Um, whether it's through airstrikes or because it's, uh, it's an area of clashes. But then there's also the dangers of um, each party of the conflict uh, having their own checkpoints and having their own um, uh, issues with human rights defenders. At some of the incidents, we cannot reach a specific area. Um, then we do our documentation through... Uh, uh, phone interviews, and uh, 
we uh, we get our um, uh, most of the documents through um, when when the victims send them to us. I asked Bonyan how Mwatana's investigations compared to those the U.S. military does. The answer was that there's no comparison because the U.S. doesn't investigate these cases. To your knowledge, has the U.S. ever done a similar investigation to what Mwatana does in Yemen about its own operations? Uh, that was one of the biggest frustrations that we faced through the research for uh, drones was that in most of the cases, people tell us you were the first person who, who asks about this. You were the first person who um, invest, who are investigating about this, and uh, we haven't heard from any organization. We haven't heard from the government, Yemeni government, or we haven't heard from the U.S. And just as Abdullahi described in Somalia, Bonyan explained how the families they work with are shocked, angry, frustrated, and have more questions than answers. Um, there was a case in Abyan um, where the researcher went to, uh, to do an interview and um, he went to where the, um, where the strike happened. He was talking to a relative of uh, a guy who died. And um, his, his relative said, um, my, my cousin and his friend were, were sitting just right where you are. Um, I don't know why the, the strike targeted him. Um, and, and he, he was saying that you could, you could be the one who is, who is targeted. I could be the one who is targeted right now, and we don't know why. That's, that shows that the families do not understand why uh, these airstrikes happen. With that confusion comes fear and trauma. Um, I remember there was a case in uh, Marib, I think, which really, really uh, hit hard. A father was was talking, and uh, he said he was he said that his son wanted to go to the bathroom, but then returned to the room and said, "No, I'm not going in." When they, when 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 they asked him why, he said, um, "You might be targeted by a drone, and you might all die. And then what will I do? If you die, I want to die with you." And uh, this just means that uh, they don't feel safe anymore. They have, uh, they, they have this, this feeling of, of we, 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 we could be targeted at, at any moment. And this, this affects people. Muatana spent four years researching civilian harm from U.S. drone strikes. Most of the cases were in dangerous, hard-to-access areas and they wanted the research to be watertight before they sent it to U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, the U.S. military's command responsible for the Middle East. So can you describe the process of bringing these cases to the U.S. government and to CENTCOM, and what was your goal, and how did the U.S. government respond? We first researched where to, to file where to file a complaint. We, we didn't know. We, uh, we tried to research it, but we couldn't. Um, and then we had uh, some help from our partners at Columbia Law School. Together with them, we were able to, to, to know where to file this uh, letter or this complaint and what is the correct format. And in, in that, I was always wondering if we 
don't know where to go to file, then what would the victims or the families of the victims do? How would they be able to know? On December 2019, uh, we sent the first letter to, to uh, uh, the Department of, of Defense. Um, and then um, we got um, one response. It was maybe um, one page. Um, it basically said that uh, we, uh, our information is wrong and, um, and that um, uh, the, the case w which we sent, the first case which we sent was um, a case of a child who, who died and another one who was injured, like an, an adult and a child. When they responded, they said that um, your information is wrong and these people are AKP. It, it implied also that AKP uh, recruits people uh, also who are not um, um, adults, recruits also children. So the Defense Department's response not only completely ignored all their research and evidence, but it claimed the children killed in these strikes weren't civilians, but must have been what? Child soldiers for Al-Qaeda? That's right. It was um, very frustrating to, to get that kind of, of um, response. Then we, uh, we sent another letter, follow-up questions. Um, we asked them um, what were their process of uh, saying that these people were... Uh, were not civilians, and um, um, how how high could they be uh, on the chain of, of command to, to be targeted? And uh, a lot of, of other questions. Uh, they replied with also a short answer that uh, in, in, in generally said that a lot of the questions were, we won't be able to answer because of national security issues. So basically they're getting stonewalled. Right. So then Watana and their partners at Columbia Law School Human Rights Institute sent another letter. This one was 150 pages, and it included all the information they had gathered in the past four years about these 12 incidents, which together included 38 civilian casualties. They detailed their methodology, they repeated their questions, and they included the requests of the families, requests for things like real investigations for recognition and accountability and for compensation. And let me guess, another response with no answers. Actually, no. Well, kind of. But um, it basically said that uh, we acknowledge uh, one civilian out of the 38 civilians uh, that you sent. And um, we were honestly surprised. They um, acknowledged only one civilian in the, we sent them 12 cases. So they actually did look through all the information, but then only came back and said they agreed with one case out of 12, out of those 150 pages of watertight research. Exactly. We worked and, and in, in very high standards. We tried to gather all these information with pictures, with uh, reports, with uh, medical and uh, reports from these people's uh, jobs and uh, community, and letters from, uh, from their community saying that what, what they did and uh, 
um, how they worked um, and who they were. But um, it was frustrating to know that after all of that, that didn't change the, um, the, the policy in which the U.S. deals with this. It, it wasn't enough to convince the, the U.S. administration of the severity of, of what's happening. So you're saying that after four years of documentation, you submitted 12 cases at the highest standard, really, that you use, and you sent multiple letters, and after all of that, they admitted to one civilian death. What was your first reaction when you got that final letter back from CENTCOM? We've been doing this this work for for some time, and we we are not surprised easily. Like we file a complaint and or a litigation, knowing the risk and knowing that uh, um, it it might not uh, um, happen. But I was honestly surprised um, to receive the the final response and. Um, when when uh, I, I realized that they only uh, admitted of one civilian, um, I was also surprised. I mean, there were cases of very, very clear cases of, of civilians, like um, um, children, very young children under the age of 10 and uh, less, um, women who were pregnant, old men and women who could not be... Uh, in, in, in any way, uh, looking at the U.S. policies and laws and values and uh, 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 legal systems uh, attached to, to military groups. Um, so just acknowledging that only one person was, was shocking. The letter also said that the military had decided not to offer an ex gratia payment to that one family. We, we called the Saleh family, who, uh, who was the person who was acknowledged. And uh, it was a very hard thing to, to, to say that the U.S. acknowledged that your father is a civilian. But that's it. He asked me, so what's okay? And then, and then I couldn't say anything. They just acknowledged in, in their letter that he is a civilian, but they cannot do, they, they don't want to do anything further than that. And what about the other families? Did you speak with the families who, whose loss the U.S. did not acknowledge? Some of the families follow up with us. Um, they ask us, what did you do? And a lot of the families are, um, I can say, have lost hope. And they're not surprised anymore. You know, you described a feeling of hopelessness among the families. And it really does sound like, in so many ways, such a hopeless outcome. And so my question for you is, you know, given all of that work that you did and the U.S.'s response What's next? What are your hopes for the future? When, when the administration changed, when the Biden administration uh, got into the, the picture, uh, we were very hopeful. But then uh, we realized that there is a lot of media saying that things will change and uh, 
um, the support to Saudi Arabia and UAE, for example, will uh, will end, and uh, uh, there will be investigation in the drones file of of Yemen. But we realized until now that um, practically and on the ground, not, not much has changed. Um, I'm still hopeful that uh, the Biden administration would uh, would improve this situation. Um, I think we we at Muatan also um, think that uh, there are there is room for uh, for change, and this is the situation is not it's not inevitable. Any uh, it still can change and. Uh, we are hopeful. So, Annie, you've been working on this issue with the U.S. government. What actually is the prospect for change in the U.S. context? I mean, I think Bonyan and Abdullahi's experiences are really, unfortunately, pretty emblematic. Getting the U.S. military to transparently acknowledge and respond to civilian harm is one of the most frustrating things that we work on. And a lot of that is because it would be so easy for them to get it right, or at least to do a lot better. And it's not a capacity issue. Again, Congress gives the Department of Defense $3 million a year for ex-Grasha payments, and they didn't use a single cent of it in 2020. And that's despite the fact that there are a large number of cases where the department agrees the U.S. has caused civilian casualties and where they have the information they need to contact survivors. So if it's not a capacity issue, that leaves us with the question of political will. And the U.S. military's record on ex-Grasha payments to date just does not suggest a good faith commitment to making amends for harm. And more broadly, a commitment to really grappling with the harm U.S. operations have caused to civilians. And do you think the Biden administration will change that? I do hope so. We do have in the U.S. a new civilian harm policy coming out, likely at the end of this year, which could include new policies on amends. And we're also working to make clear that President Biden's stated commitment to ending the forever wars also has to include this kind of reckoning with the civilian toll of those wars. But again, I do think it's a political will issue, so change will have to come from the top down or from Congress, which is definitely not out of the question. I mean, we have seen a lot of progress on civilian protection come from congressional action. But we've talked a lot about the U.S. today, so I'm curious, Mark, from Pax's perspective, working in the Netherlands, how do European nations see this issue of amends? Amends is a developing concept for Europeans, but it's hard to see it moving forward when their track record of even accepting that they've caused harm is so abysmal. The UK, for example, noted a single civilian death in over 1,700 airstrikes against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. France miraculously claims that they've never killed a single civilian in all of their operations, despite overwhelming NGO reporting to the contrary. And the Dutch have been particularly frustrating. In 2015, a Dutch airstrike killed over 70 civilians in Iraq. They only admitted to it four years later, and only after journalists published irrefutable evidence. But Pax is now working with them to establish a civilian harm policy, so at least they're willing to consider it. So that's that's the first challenge we encounter with European countries. You can't amend harm when you won't admit that it even happened. 
The process of civilians finding answers and getting amends is also especially challenging in a coalition setting, which is the context in which so many European nations undertake operations. In the cases that we talked about today, civilians and NGOs could pretty easily figure out that it was a U.S. airstrike. But imagine these same situations in a coalition setting, like the coalition fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Imagine being a civilian trying to find answers about what happened to your family, but having no idea whose plane it was, who dropped the bomb. You know, most journeys stop there, with no hope of answers or amends. And what about NATO? Does NATO have an amends policy? So while we're pushing for a NATO-wide standard, it's hard because of the various legal issues of each member state. It sadly depends on who harmed you and where. Member states don't want to be told what to do in such a delicate circumstance. Yet at the same time, when things go wrong, they still try to play the NATO card like, oh, it was NATO's fault. Arguing it was just a NATO mission, therefore the alliance should pay the bill. And what's so frustrating is that if the intention was truly to help civilians, it would make a lot more sense to opt for a system that's concerned primarily with establishing what harm is done and what is fair amends, and much less with proving who exactly caused the harm. But civic impacts are fighting for militaries to set these standards, and there is some hope. For example, amends has made it into a NATO handbook this year for the very first time. What is clear is that stronger responses to civilian harm won't come without the continued work of people and organizations like Bonyan and Watana and Abdullahi and Amnesty International. And that a true reckoning with civilian harm also has to be matched with a better commitment to protecting civilians in the first place. That was it for this episode. Next time on the Civilian Protection Podcast, we'll explore the concept of peacekeeping. How do peacekeeping missions protect civilians? How are these missions experienced by people in conflict? What works and what needs to change? The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Mark Arlasco and Annie Scheel, with assistance from Monica Zura, Dan Mahanti, Aaron Bell, Selma Von Osvard, and Clark Orr. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Monica Zura made the designs and made sure we're online. We'd like to thank Bonyan Jamal and Abdullahi Hassan for joining us as guests. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics that you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content. You can follow Bonyan Jamal and the work of Mwatana and follow Abdullahi Hassan and Amnesty International, both on Twitter. Find full interviews and upcoming episodes on our websites, civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>